You are now listening to British Birds, the Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the true crime podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of season 9. Before we get into it, let's break the ice as always. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that Nintendo was founded in September 1889? It originally started out as a handmade Hanafuda playing card company called Nintendo Karuta before slowly branching out into other forms of gaming. This episode has a heavy gaming theme so it makes sense to include a gaming fact. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. I am the two-time back-to-back blockbuster 1993-1994 video game champion with a deadly Ethiopian caterpillar standing at 6 foot 8 inch with a 37-inch vertical leap. That was said by Dr. Disrespect, if you don't know who that is. The kids do. He's a streamer, gamer. He wears a cool uniform. This case was suggested by Nevea Rose Andrews via Messenger. We're in the town of Greys this week, located within the borough of Thurrock in Essex. Here are five quickfire facts about Greys. Number one. Greys is the site of the biggest murder investigation known to Essex police. On October 23rd, 2019, the bodies of 39 Vietnamese people were found in the trailer of a lorry in the town. 15 arrests have been made so far in connection with the deaths. Number two, there's an upside-down house in Greys. The Lakeside Upside-Down House is the second attraction from the Upside-Down House Company in the UK. Number three, Shafford Gorge Nature Discovery Park, probably saying that wrong, is located in Greys. The Essex Wildlife Trust-owned former quarry offers 200 acres of green space for numerous wildlife and recreation. Number four, Greys has its own man-made beach. Built by the Victorians, it's situated on the edge of the River Thames and contains a beachy play park and picnic area. And finally, number five, some 305 young men from the town died in World War I and had their lives commemorated in 1921 when a war memorial was unveiled by the local council. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Greys was 74,711. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Our villain this week was just 18 years old when the events of this story occurred. His name is Lewis Danes, and he lived alone at a flat in an apartment building called Greylands on Rosebury Road in Greys. Not much is known about Lewis's early life, but from what I could gather, he appears to have had a rather turbulent childhood. His parents divorced at some point, though it's not clear when, but the ramifications of that separation would be that Lewis would be first taken in by his grandma before child services stepped in. I'm not going to speculate as to whether or not Lewis spent time in one or more foster homes because it's quite possible he was never put into foster care. His parents, or his mum at the very least, appeared to have left the country, leaving Lewis vulnerable, afraid and alone. The fact he lived on his own at the young age of 18, to me, kind of speaks volumes as to how he likely felt a sense of abandonment throughout his life. 
With no family to turn to and no close friends in the real world, Lewis turned to online gaming, a place where he felt much more comfortable. In the gaming world, escapism is key. You could go online and tell everyone your name was bought if you wanted to, that have no reason not to believe you. He found his people there and would often make claims that he was a computer engineer that travelled the world to attend various meetings relating to his work. How true that was remains to be seen, as he was unemployed during the events of this story. New York, Dubai and even Syria were some of the countries Lewis claimed to have been required to visit. To those in his TeamSpeak group, Lewis was an ultra-cool dude responsible for running his own multi-million pound computer engineering firm. Keeping himself isolated from others outside the four walls of his flat, Lewis could make something of himself in the virtual world. Being friends with Lewis online wasn't the most pleasant of experiences though. Often his fellow group admins would feel put in their place due to Lewis's domineering and condescending nature. He would allegedly manipulate his online friends and do his best to brainwash them by forcing his views onto them and demanding that they agree with what he was saying. Metaphorically speaking, we all wear masks, but when Lewis has slipped, those in his firing line were often left quivering. In 2011, when Lewis was roughly 15, he had a very real brushing with the law that he was either extremely lucky to get away with or incredibly unlucky to almost go to prison for. Lewis was arrested by Essex police on suspicion of attempting to rape a fellow 15-year-old boy. In total, five sexual assault charges were placed against Lewis, but Essex police ended up dropping them and decided to take no further action. That means that one of three things happened. Either the police dropped a bollock and knowingly let a rapist go free of charge, there was insufficient evidence to bring forth a conviction, or Lewis was wrongly arrested and didn't rape anyone. Naturally, Lewis denied each of the five charges and continues to do so to this day. He has said of the 2011 incident, The media and family have accused me falsely of raping a boy, incredibly whilst two adults were sitting in the next room. The police fully investigated this accusation and found it to have no substance. They found no evidence whatsoever. The boy retracted this false accusation. The prosecution deemed it unreliable and unsafe to put it forward as part of their evidence against me in 2014. That last part is definitely true, because in his 2014 murder trial, which we'll come on to later, the prosecution said there was no realistic prospect of conviction regarding those five charges. Having said that, the reason they gave was that Lewis had already pleaded guilty to murder by then, so what would be the point in including those other historic charges? I'll leave it to you, the listener, to make your own mind up as to whether you think Lewis Danes was capable of doing what he was accused of doing in 2011. I mentioned something called TeamSpeak earlier, and at the time of researching, I had no idea what it was. In case you're in the same boat as me, here's a wee explanation. It's what's known as a VOIP app, with VOIP, I wonder if the kids pronounce it VoIP, standing for Voice Over Internet Protocol. In layman's terms, it's an audio chat room service where you can create your own chat channels. Think of it like Zoom calls, but with just audio. I assume gamers use that channel to chat while they play different games or do different things on their respective computers. Christ, I sound old. I used to be well into my gaming and all. In around 2012, Lewis created one of these chatroom communities and prided himself on its diversity, something apparently not often seen online. A 
According to Lewis, the main two nationalities of the community's members were British and American, with the ages of those involved ranging from 8 to 25. Now that in itself is a huge red flag for me. Eight-year-olds gaming online is scary enough, but being in a chatroom community with some 20-something-year-olds is just downright frightening. Then again, most of the community's members were teenagers, but still. One of the aforementioned admins of the TeamSpeak community, of which there were nine in total, was 14-year-old Breck Bedner. Breck lived in the town of Caterham in Surrey, around 30 miles southwest of Greys. With Breck at the house were his mum, Lauren Lefebvre, and his younger triplet siblings. Lauren was originally from the US state of Michigan and met Breck's dad, Barry Bedner, a fellow American, over there. The couple met in Colorado, so it's logical to assume that Barry was born in the Centennial State, but I can't say that for sure. The couple married in the Lone Star State, that's Texas to you and me, in 1993 and moved to England three years later in 1996. The reason for the move was reportedly to do with Barry's job as an oil futures trader and shipping consultant. The move was perhaps made far easier than it could have been as they had no kids at that point. When the couple's first child, Breck, was born on March 17th, 1999, he brought nothing but joy to his parents' lives. Even so, Lauren and Barry eventually separated, leaving their four kids in Lauren's primary care, but Breck, and likely his siblings, still had a relationship with their father. Lauren, who earned money as a teaching assistant, has described her eldest child as a gentle, calm, intelligent, good-humoured and handsome boy. He had many friends in both the real and gaming worlds and was just a really chill teenager. His main passion, as you might expect, was computing, which undoubtedly led him to joining Louis Dane's online community, where he became an admin. The St. Bede school student regularly attended St. John the Evangelist Church in catering with his family and was also a member of the Air Training Corps 135 Squadron, a British volunteer military youth organisation. Cadet membership can begin from the start of school year 8, so basically from the age of 12, and service typically ends once cadets turn 18. It's closely associated with the Royal Air Force, but it's not a recruiting organisation for the RAF, despite many of its cadets joining the RAF. Essentially, Breck had so much going for him. At the tender age of 14, he consistently received A grades for his schoolwork and was involved in several extracurricular activities. He had a bright future ahead of him, that's for sure. Sadly, Breck's future would be cut short by this episode's villain, Louis Danes. Our main timeline begins in 2013, when Breck joined Lewis's TeamSpeak community. Perhaps sensing an air of vulnerability and naivete within Breck, Lewis took it upon himself to begin manipulating the youngster's thoughts and actions. Forcing his ideals on him, Lewis would tell wild tales of his worldly travels and business acumen, which impressed not only Breck, but every other young teen in the online community. Whilst playing multiplayer war games such as Call of Duty and Battlefield, Lewis would drop hints at how he was involved with secret work for the US government, something which no doubt played at the dual nationality heartstrings of Breck. I want to make it clear that Lewis vehemently denies having ever manipulated, groomed or controlled Breck, although he does admit to having killed him. Lewis feels the media, along with Breck's family, have spun several lies about what really happened and about the situation at Breck's home. Lewis has accused someone in Breck's family of being abusive towards the youngster, but has refused to name them. He said, 
I don't intend to name Brick's abuser who forced him to take comfort in the internet virtual world. I don't need to. They know who they are, as well as the police from the abuse reports filed, and those close to Breck. You can decide whether or not you believe Lewis when I've finished the rest of the story. Lewis and Breck spoke often and became rather close, so much so that Lauren began noticing changes in how Lewis was behaving and how he spoke. Lauren said, His personality was changing, and his ideology was changing. He was starting to refuse to attend church with us. He was starting to refuse to do the normal family things we did. I felt like it was because of the negative influence of this person. It wasn't just Lauren who noticed either. Some of the other community members were also concerned at how Breck was being influenced by Lewis. They felt like Lewis was attempting to control Breck by turning his family against him, leaving him with nobody else in the world except for Lewis. At some point towards the back end of 2013, Lauren is said to have confronted Lewis about his controlling behaviour, but it seemingly fell on deaf ears. She would walk into Breck's room and hear him say something along the lines of, I can't speak, my mum is here. Lewis would simply tell Breck to ignore his mum and anything she asked him to do, such as to turn the computer off and stop talking to Lewis. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Frustrated and anxious about her son's declining behaviour, Lauren decided to inform the police of her concerns on December 17th, 2013. The operator at Surrey Police that answered Lauren's call appears to have been insufficiently able to handle the situation, as was their supervisor. Based on what Lauren told them, the correct procedure should have been to inform the worried mother about agencies that specialise in protecting children online. One such agency is the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Command, or CEOP, a law enforcement agency that aims to help keep children and young people safe from sexual abuse and grooming online. Also, a check of the police national computer should have occurred because if it had, the operator would have spotted Lewis's 2011 suspected rape charge. Instead, none of the above actions took place, which likely left Lauren more panicked than she had been before making the call. Fast forward two months to February 2014 and Lauren's fears were about to become a reality. After promising to help Breck become a millionaire by helping him with some form of a computer business deal, Lewis asked the 14-year-old to visit him at his flat in Greys. Knowing that Breck's mum would forbid it, Lewis provided him with a cover story, which he sent by email on Wednesday, February 12, 2014. Here's an extract. If your father asks you where you're going on Sunday, say you're going to meet a friend who's 14, named Edward Bly. He moved to Cairo last year with his mother when his parents split up. He was a good friend for the first part of year 9. He's invited you over to his dad's house for the day. He goes on to explain what Breck should say to his dad, who he was spending the weekend with, should he question it further, and to also have his dad expect him to likely stay the night. On Sunday, February 16th, 2014, Lewis said goodbye to his dad and entered a taxi headed for Greys. The taxi was paid for by Lewis. Upon his arrival at number 12 Greylands, Breck was greeted with open arms by the man he had, up until that point, only ever spoken to online. He may not have even known what Lewis looked like, but that's conjecture. At 6.40pm that evening, Lewis ordered a pizza. At 11.06am the following morning, Monday, February 17th, 2014, Lewis dialed 999. Here's an excerpt from that call. Essex Place Emergency. Hi there. Um, okay. Uh, hello. Um, I need police and a forensics team to my address, please. 
What do you mean? What's happened? My friend and I got into an altercation and I'm the only one who came out alive. Are you telling me you've killed somebody? Yes, I am. Okay, and what's actually happened? My friend came to stay the night with me yesterday, feeling very down, feeling suicidal. And I woke up this morning, he was in a mess, I tried to calm him down. I hugged him, then said that I was there for him. He grabbed, he, he shrugged me off. Can you, can you just bear with me a second, don't tell me any more, okay? You're telling me he is definitely dead. I'm telling, yes, I'm telling you he's definitely dead. You can listen to the call in its entirety online if you wish. The reason I mention the pizza order is that it gives us a timeline for Brick's death. The truth of what happened that night is known only to Louis Danes, but he must have killed Brett Bedner between 6.40pm on the 16th and 11.06am on the 17th. It's thought that Breck was in fact killed around 11am on the 17th, just five or so minutes before Lewis phoned the police. I read in one article that if Lewis was indeed killed on the 17th, that was his mum's birthday. Lewis murdered Breck by stabbing him in the neck after binding his wrists and ankles with duct tape that he'd purchased in the week leading up to Breck's arrival. As well as the duct tape, Lewis had ordered some condoms and syringes online. A later post-mortem indicated that there was evidence of sexual activity between the two teens, but no indication is given as to whether that was consensual or not. Lewis insists that Breck was sent into a state of panic when he saw a semi-unpacked suitcase in his flat. In his own words, Lewis has said of Breck's death, I had been offered a job abroad. I was in the final stages of preparation to leave to take up that job. I had a lot to do but allowed Breck to once again confide in me about his domestic situation and abuse. He knew of my plans and when he saw my suitcase it led to a fight which is totally out of character for both of us and ended in his tragic death. Here's the thing though, after killing Breck, Lewis is alleged to have changed his clothes, showered and taken some pictures of the 14 year old's dead body. He then sent the pictures to two of his online friends and before long they made their way onto the phones of some of Brett's younger siblings. Whilst the police made their way to the flat in Greys, Lewis immersed his mobile phones, hard drives and pen drives in water in his bathroom sink. After being arrested and taken in for questioning, Lewis refused to tell the police what his passwords were. A search of the flat ensued and the officers soon found a bin bag that had been stuffed with Brett's bloodstained clothes. Lewis then resorted to the classic no-comment defence when asked literally any question about the death of Breck. As the court system prepared to hold Lewis's murder trial, he suddenly changed his verdict from not guilty to guilty in November 2014. A month later, in December 2014, Surrey Police referred itself to the Independent Police Complaints Commission regarding how it had handled Lauren's phone call a year prior. The outcome of the IPCC's investigation would lead to a misconduct notice being handed to one staff member at Surrey Police's contact centre, while the call hander who spoke to Lauren initially decided to resign. Lauren and Barry would go on to sue Surrey Police and successfully receive a payout in 2016. The force assured them that it had since carried out a review of practices in its call handling centre and implemented changes to improve the way information is handled and shared. A Surrey police spokesman also said, 
Mr. Bedner and Ms. Lefebvre hope to work with Surrey Police in order to enhance awareness of the dangers that young people face online and to ensure that appropriate training is given to staff to assist in the prevention of similar crimes against children. Lewis Danes was handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 25 years on January 12, 2015 by Mrs. Justice Cox at Chelmsford Crown Court. As I mentioned earlier, the five charges from 2011 were revisited but ultimately were left out of the prosecution's case. In a closing statement, Mrs. Justice Cox said, Having lured the young victim to your flat, you murdered him. You had befriended Breck and a number of other adolescent friends through an online community. Your contact with Breck increased in a sinister way. The precise details of what happened in your flat are unclear and may never be known. I'm sure that this murder was driven by sadistic or sexual motivation. Lauren Lefebvre said after sentencing, No amount of years behind bars will ever change the poisonous attitude and actions of a psychotic animal who can behave this way. No amount of years will bring back the lovely boy taken from us. In 2014, Lauren set up a charity called the Breck Foundation in response to the tragic loss of her son Breck. They aim to prevent this from ever happening again and they reach thousands of children and young people in schools and other community settings every year by telling them Breck's story and teaching them how to be safe online. Lewis has done his best to put what he considers the true story out there by uploading two blog posts to his Blogspot page. The first, titled Open Letter from Lewis Danes, was published on November 26, 2015. The second, titled BBC Documentary Questions to be Asked was published on January 26, 2016, the same day a documentary titled Murder Games, The Life and Death of Breck Bedner was set to air on the BBC. In that second post, Lewis writes, The BBC are broadcasting a drama Tuesday 26th of January called Murder Games. It's basically a crusade against the online gaming community, myself and the family's attempt to highlight police incompetence and sue two police forces. The trailer is highly dramatic, as you would expect from BBC media. It tells one side of a story, which in itself shows intent to create bias. In every story, there are two sides, and people with any interest should always err on the side of facts, rather than media spin and distortion. While some believe Lewis posted those blogs as a means of getting his side of the story across, others believe he only did it to inflict further hurt on an already grieving family one last-ditch effort at regaining some form of control over the loved ones of the boy he murdered. As recently as 2019, Lewis has made contact with one of Breck's sisters using the app Snapchat. The disturbing messages sent reportedly include things such as I know where your brother is buried and I'm going to smash his tombstone. And that was the story of British murderer Lewis Danes. Thanks again, Novea Rose Andrews, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've got seven new reviews to read this week. Jack T96 left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Awesome. It reads, My favourite podcast, nice and short but straight to the point. Gets me through my long, arduous days at work. Keep up the great work, and until next time, cheerio. Rachel Inno left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Bingeworthy Podcast. It reads, Discovered British Murders at the start of the year and can't stop listening. Love the length of the episodes and how Stuart manages to get all the info in. Also love the accent as I am also from Yorkshire. Never stop podcasting. Olivia M left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Relaxing. It reads, Hi Stuart, I love this podcast. Easy to listen to your wonderful accent and would recommend this to everyone. 
You describe everything with empathy, and I love that about your podcast. Shout out to my best friend who recommended this to me, Lily H. Luke Wadsworth Thurnham left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Shout out, Luke. Titled Practically Perfect in Every Way, it reads, Absolutely exceptional storytelling and delivery of some of the most taboo subjects and source material delivered with compassion and empathy. I am a very new listener, having only gotten involved with the most recent special, but I am hooked. I couldn't wait for the conclusion of the West's horror story, even though I thought I already knew the truly heinous nature of their crimes. The research that must go into the episode must drive Stu borderline insane, if nothing else. I can only applaud the work and effort that goes into the production of the episodes on what is a truly great podcast. Keep up the fantastic work, and I shall be listening weekly for sure. Gem left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Obsessed. It reads, Recently found this podcast and I've binged until there's no more. Not sure what I'm going to listen to now. I love the length of episodes as it keeps my short attention span engaged. Loads of cases I'd never heard of, which is refreshing given how much true crime I listen to. Developed a small podcast crush on Stuart whilst binging British murders. Such an easy voice to listen to and great sense of humour. CSBL1301 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts UK. Titled Amazing, it reads, Best podcast, been hooked since I found it. I found the pod when it was on Series 5, so I had to start back at Series 1, Episode 1. Love the format, the short informative episodes and no nonsense you find in other podcasts. Also, it's all about British murders which have been solved, which excites me as I'm not left hanging on wondering if they got caught or not. And finally, Lisa Partridge sent me a message on Patreon saying five stars for the Bobby Holmes podcast. I love hearing these special podcasts as it helps fill in the gaps in between your podcast seasons. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Jack, Rachel, Olivia, Luke, Jem, CSBL1301 and Lisa for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon members, 1350 Apricot and Lisa Partridge. Thank you also to the anonymous person that bought me a beer via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout out. That's it for the first episode of season nine. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.